National Race and Capitalism Project, welcome to season four of New Dawn, the podcast focusing on the intersection of race and capitalism, its theories, geographies, and histories, with your host, Michael Dawson. Patricia Posey is a provost, postdoctoral fellow at the University of Chicago, and a junior faculty member of the Race and Capitalism Project. She specializes in race and American political economy. It is my pleasure to welcome her on the show today. Thanks for coming on the show. Glad you're here via Penn and MIT. You're doing pioneering work on financial inclusion, but one of the key concepts you work with is the French economy. What do you mean by that? The French economy refers to financial institutions or institutions more broadly that has a kind of predatory relationship with the community or with the consumer. And so in previous works by other scholars, oftentimes you hear the term French banking, which refers to check cashing, or you hear the French sector, or kind of FDIC refers to these services as the alternative financial service sector. But in my work, I use this term to emphasize the interconnectedness of these services, as well as, as I noted before, this idea of marginalization. So some examples of services in the French economy are payday loans, for for example, and payday loans typically is kind of really salient and most people talk about them. They're high interest, small dollar loans. Depending on the state that they're in, the interest rates on these loans can be as high as 391%. Um, another service that's a part of the French economy are check cashing services. And again, depending on the state, the average kind of percentage to kind of cash a check at one of these services is one to two percent, but it can be as high as 20 percent. And then folks don't think about these as commonly, but there are other services like, for example, rent to own centers. So let's say that, you know, I just got a new apartment and I don't own a, a couch and I don't have that the capital, the money to actually buy, buy it in advance. I can go to this place where I can make payments per week for this piece of furniture and if I miss a payment on that, on those payments or to that company, they can come back and take it. Or let's say I can't afford a service for kind of healthcare, right? So let's say I go to the dentist and I, I need some work done and I actually can't afford the cost of all that work. I can get a finance card where, again, I can make payments for a period of time. And let's say I miss a payment, all the interest that I wasn't paying originally can end up costing me a lot at the very end. So the theme that's running through these different examples that I'm giving is about this high cost, right? I said marginalization for a reason because of kind of this extractive nature of these services or kind of these institutions are having on the individual. And then the other thing that you'll note is that it varies really greatly by, by the state. So there's not a one fix all. It really depends on kind of where you live and how you're interacting with these services. Growing up in Chicago, the, the one that we saw all the time in our neighborhoods were the currency exchanges. And the other fairly extractive one, at least in the neighborhoods I lived in, were if you need to send money to, let's say, a relative in trouble, mm -hmm. the fees for those could be quite ridiculous. Yeah, and I mean, when we're talking about them being ridiculous, the underlying part of that is ridiculous in compared to what? Right, and so one of the ways to think about this, this extractive nature, is what does it mean to be someone that can use traditional financial services or the bank, for example? And, you know, if I had a bank account and I wanted to do something like get a small dollar loan 
is it possible to get a small dollar loan at my bank? Or if I wanted to, you know, cash my check, does it cost me anything to cash my check? The short answer is no, because you have a bank account. The long answer is, well, yeah, it does. Because if you don't keep a minimum balance in your account, you're paying for that account. If you take out too much money or overdraft your account, you're paying for that account. If you kind of make any type of mistake, you're paying for those for that account. In comparison to something like a check cashing place, for example, where individuals know exactly what they're getting, they know the exact cost uh, to cash a check or to send a money order or to you know engage in some type of like financial action is the word I'm looking for. So there have been some journalists, activists, some scholars who have written about the French economy in various ways and its predatory nature. But you're one of the few scholars who's done a lot of empirical work on the French economy. Can you talk, tell us about your empirical work and how you went about it, what you found from it? So in my dissertation work, which is kind of the base of my ongoing manuscript, I look at the ways in which kind of these financial institutions end up affecting political life. And the way I measure this is I not only take account of where these things are located, but also how individuals are experiencing them. And when I say them, the services I look at, particularly in my quantitative work, are payday loans, title loans, check cashing, and also banking. But in my more qualitative work, respondents end up talking about the different types of services that they experience. And as I noted before, it varies so much by state. So when I'm talking to respondents in Pennsylvania, I'm not hearing anything really about payday loans or at least brick and mortar payday loans. But when I'm talking to respondents in Illinois, I'm hearing quite a bit about payday loans. And I'm also hearing quite a bit about kind of these rent to own centers or check cashing services more broadly. And so in this work, I end up putting forth this argument and demonstrating that individuals who end up engaging in these services and using these services may become active or are a little bit more active in politics because as I noted these are resource services right and in lots of seminal political science work we talk about the importance of resources how resources are like the foundation to why people participate however the quality of these services how as I mentioned before how they're really extractive ends up kind of conditioning this relationship that's to say that although individuals who use these services may participate a little bit more in politics However, if they're in a place where these things are extremely concentrated, that positive relationship starts to attenuate. Something I didn't talk about before is, you know, why is it the case that we should even be looking at this outside of their financial or kind of economic impact, right? Why do I care about the political nature of these services? And the short answer is anyone that's lived in, driven by a low income community of color, they have a sense of what the fringe economy is. So I gave this very technical definition at the very beginning, but it, it's really rooted in lived experiences. And then on the other hand, there's all this research that talks about what does it mean to have frequent, visible, and direct contact with these services over and over again, or any service, right? And how that ends up shaping political life. So if it's the case that there's some people that are interacting with these services all the time, and it's actually interacting with, you know, their consistent resource constraints or providing a supplement in neighborhoods where, you know, other traditional financial services have left, 
then we should really think very carefully about what impact could they mean for political life. And so looking at kind of participation is one way, but also looking at political attitudes is another way, right? So in my research, you know, it's the case that individuals can note the way that their neighborhoods look very different on these dimensions from traditional white neighborhoods, white well-resourced neighborhoods, I should say, right? They can note and say things like, you know, why does the government just allow these things to be here? Now, the question is, what do they mean by government? It varies. But the notion is that somebody is responsible, somebody should be doing something that comes out so consistently in at least my work. So when you talk to people in, I think it was primarily Philly and Chicago, yes, residents of these communities, do they see these services as a necessary evil or a positive force in the community or just part of everyday life? All of those things. And I think that's why looking at this topic is so important because the people that use the services and also people that live in neighborhoods with these services, they have a complex understanding of their purpose, right? A necessary evil, sweet and sour. They can say in one way that these services are predatory. They'll use that language and say these services are predatory and they're picking on someone that looks like me, right? And that phrase will come from, you know, that phrase that exact phrase came from a woman that was black, right? That they pick on people that look like me, but what else am I supposed to do, right? Or they talk about the ways in which it's extremely transparent, that they know what they're getting, that it helps them budget, right? That, it, that they know exactly kind of the cost. Can they afford to wait for the time it takes to cash a check? or if they don't have the needed expense or the needed extra $500, as an example, where can they get it? Oftentimes they can't borrow it from another family member or something or something like that because we know our financial networks look very similar, right? So people who I live with or who I'm with typically have the same type of resource constraints that, that I have. And so kind of that sweet and sour, recognizing that it's kind of good and bad you know, I guess, moves through kind of these different networks and people can articulate that very clearly. And other scholars have shown that individuals not only have these types of experiences or these types of opinions rather, but particularly when thinking about check cashing, they can tell you all the ways in which check cashing is preferable to banking. So, you know, it's really transparent that they feel Welcome. They note the ways in which banking is actually more expensive, right, as I kind of noted in some other examples. So one of the interesting, I don't know about interesting, but one of the things you often hear is from outside observers who don't live in these communities or have limited experiences with these communities say, well, people should get just either start their own banks or use traditional banking. Chicago, which is one of your cases, is fairly interesting on this. One of the reasons we had so many currency exchanges is that branch banking was actually outlawed. Mm -hmm. So unless you were, if you were a black person living on the south or west side, and unless you were, had the resources and felt comfortable going downtown to the really, really big banks, mm -hmm. which my family members did on occasion, I always felt when they dragged me along because I was a little kid that this was not a place I was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't because I was a little kid. <laughs> uh, but 
one of the things that happened is that there were several attempts to start community banks on the south side. Mm -hmm. Why is that not an alternative? Why isn't community banking not an alternative? Well, one of the things is that, well, I guess a few things of why community banking can't be the sole alternative, right? So is that one, can these banks, as other folks have noted, can they actually survive? They or did it in Chicago. I actually knew they part part of the answer. <laughs> <laughs> exactly right, and they can't. A part of the reason why they can't survive is that they don't actually have the capital and the resources to maintain. So they end up kind of kind of pulling resources from these neighborhoods that are also already resource poor, and and then we end up seeing those not being able to be successful. A second reason is you know over the past thirty years we've seen kind of these big banks end up buying up these like very little banks, right? And, you know, without kind of a major restructuring of how we understand financial inclusion broadly, these services or community banks cannot survive independently of kind of, you know, a revamping of how we understand these services. One of the phenomena I saw in Chicago that I actually know a couple of scholars that are Chicago-based and studied them and some of the work with these banks is undercapitalization, of course, is a big problem. And but connected to that is often they felt either morally or politically or something usually both compelled to make risky loans, right? Mm-hmm. But if they're undercapitalized, they don't have the margin for error that a large bank could mm-hmm. if they wanted to make you know risky loans to under-resourced communities. Yeah, and, uh, and risky loans by definition are when you you know you give a loan or you kind of offer a loan to someone that may be poor or credit poor because you don't really know or they don't you don't really know the likelihood of their ability to pay back but if we're talking about how these services or how this like just interacts more broadly well folks are under-resourced period how else is the case that someone will be able to kind of get a loan if someone doesn't take a risk on them in the first place right that's part of the major restructuring of financial Mm -hmm. inclusion that you're referring to I think the other thing, if I remember correctly, that happened too, is because they're under-resourced, I think they might have been paying up higher, paying higher fees, charging higher fees than the traditional banks did for the same services. And then that practice ends up looking like the practices of the fringe economy, where to supplement the fact that individuals are quote-unquote higher risk, which kind of materializes, or I guess, in practice looks like being someone that may be poor or credit poor, you end up, or companies or institutions end up charging higher fees, higher interest rates in order to kind of account for this. And that's a part of the argument for why these services end up being able to operate the way they do and an argument for why they should be able to operate the way they do, right? Because what is the alternative? So. In terms of political effects, if I understand your work correctly, that not surprising, or maybe surprising to some political scientists, but there is a modest individual level uptake in community engagement on the part of people mm-hmm. in these neighborhoods at the individual level who use these services. And again, you know, whether it's Schlossman, Verba and Brady and the whole range of people who talk about resources and political participation, that's mm-hmm. not surprising. But you also found, I think, a more disturbing neighborhood effect, which is that aggregate participation goes down when you have a concentration mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in these neighborhoods. What are some of the other political and policy implications of your understanding of the fringe economy and your own work? Yeah, so 
some of the implications of this is that you know, especially with the way in which that attenuates, that effect attenuates at the aggregate level, it reminds me a lot of kind of work being done on predatory inclusion more broadly. So what does it mean to give folks access to a resource and that resource comes with costlier constraints or that resource comes in a, in a way in which it ends up making it the case that all the positives, all the kind of long-term positives that comes from having that resource ends up being negated by the fact that you have to pay back so much. Here I'm thinking about kind of work on kind of like student loan debt. And so kind of one of the implications of my work is that it's kind of a broader reflection of, you know, one type of system of predatory inclusion, but we can see this in other places. It also kind of emphasizes the way that kind of financial stability and financial inclusion is not separate from political inclusion. And I argue that you need both. Like financial inclusion predicts political inclusion, right? Or that's one way of thinking about my, my finding. Or another way we can think about it that, you know, a necessary condition of political inclusion is this financial inclusion. And that, you know, that boost that we get at the individual level of resources matters because resources are important. Money is important, right? Windfalls are important. However, kind of that that attenuation emphasizes that the kind of resources are just as important. I've heard some moralists, and I'm being fairly snarky right now, <laughs> argue, argue that, okay, people should just use regular banks. Oh, God. <laughs> but one of our colleagues on the project, Emily Kastenstein, does work on some prime, on the subprime loan mm -hmm. crisis. And I don't think it's a stretch, you can tell me if you agree or disagree, that Oftentimes when we get banks like Wells Fargo, massive financial institutions in the mainstream economy, mm -hmm. when they go into these neighborhoods, they act like fringe economy players. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't seem to me necessary that the extension of mainstream banking into poor communities, uh, particularly poor, poor communities of color, has had, I mean, had a devastating effect on, on black and brown communities during the, during, the, during the subprime crisis when we saw massive rates of foreclosures in those neighborhoods and renters getting dispossessed when their buildings got sold out from under them, et cetera. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't disagree at all. And a part of the reasons why I don't disagree are all the empirical observations that you're outlining. But another way that I think about that is, remember, the French economy or the way that we're talking about it or is this like the kind of relationship institutions have with the consumer. And so subprime lending, I wouldn't think of that as something completely separate from the French economy, mm -mm. right? I would think of that as quintessential, another type of example of what does it mean to kind of have this extractive relationship. Well, that, I think that's, that's one of the strengths of your work. I think a lot of times when people, and I think I've fallen into this pattern as well, when we think about the French economy or the informal economy, we're thinking about something separate from mainstream financial institutions. And you're saying it's not the nature of the institution, the nature of the relationship of an institution to a community is the extractive nature. Mm -hmm. So it could be Wells Fargo or it could be your payday loans, and, but they still have the same type of structural relationship, extractive, exactly. predatory relationship to the community. Exactly, exactly. That's exactly it. And also too, like it ends up, like thinking about it in this way allows for us to have kind of a broad understanding of you know, kind of the scope, right? Like who can be indicted underneath this term or kind of what can, what kind of solutions can we imagine 
underneath kind of this broad kind of characterizing. That's also one of the, the issues, right? Is that in some ways I'm arguing, well, any institution can have this extractive relationship. And we see that historically, obviously, but... I want to ask you a totally unfair question. But oh, no. That's, that's what we do. Uh, well, I'm leaving now. Uh, oh, it's over. <laughs> you should be fairly prepared for this one. I was talking to <laughs> one of our colleagues about your work, a friend of ours, and one of the things she said is that, yeah, they're predatory, they're extractive, but they're also to some degree necessary because there's no sub, you know, easy substitution. Obviously, the simplistic answer, oh, let's just build regular banks, has not been a solution. So what are some of the alternatives on the table, whether private sector or, or public sector based, in terms of trying to maximize financial inclusion, but in a way that doesn't presuppose an extractive relationship to the vulnerable communities of color? So I think the best way to answer that answer is, or answer that question rather, is in two parts. The first is that there's a difference between long-term solutions and what I think is possible <laughs> for future us and what I think is important right now to affect everyone's daily lives. Long term, we need a broad restructuring of how we understand financial inclusion, financial inclusion writ large. Like we need to understand how the ways in which individuals need access to resources and how we can structurally make that more possible, whether it be by physical, physical locations or kind of about the ways in which the procedures individuals end up interacting with these services. In the short term, I think it's a mix of lots of solutions. One of the solutions that people talk about is postal banking. In the same places where you don't see kind of banks, there are post offices and they end up, they can do these practices that banks have. Historically, they did in the past. Another solution that people talk about is kind of community banks. But as we noted before, there are some downsides to community banking. Can they actually have kind of the, the capital to you know, do some of the practices? Another solution that people talk about is kind of financial technologies, you know, ways in which kind of technology can make it easier and more accessible. But in other work, I talk about the way kind of financial technologies can only interact with existing structures. So they cannot, you know, overhaul kind of systems of inequality and inegalitarianism that we see, right? Because so, you need a bank account to have an Apple card, right? Exactly, precisely, right? So it, it, it relies already on these infrastructures. So the short answer is a mixture of whatever can improve people's lives right now. The long answer is we have to think about what we mean by financial inclusion. We have to kind of rethink about or rethink these ideas that folks that don't have access or don't have resources the solution is that they just need to be better at managing their, their finances or kind of our opinions about people that don't have access to resources more broadly about poor people that, you know, they just don't get it. But what we know empirically, the poor pay more. The poor pay more for not having resources, not having money. And so that's the question that we have to address in, in the long term. Just to go back a second to one of the short term solutions. I know that there's some local jurisdictions that are trying to implement postal banking. I, my understanding that it's fairly popular in Europe, but there might be some of our listeners who are not familiar with it. Could you say a little bit more about what postal banking is and what it does and does not do to improve financial inclusion in these communities? The short answer is we can think of postal banking as kind of a stand-in or the way we think about traditional banking. Some entity, the post office, backed by the government, being able to not only provide savings, but also loans to the individual. The important part about this is that 
it is backed by the government, right? One of the strengths of this is that historically, the United States had postal banking at like kind of since it's sounding like so it's like kind of one of the longest standing institutions in the United States and over time we've seen kind of the shift away from these like banking practices the questions of why this these services or by postal banking may not be kind of a the most ideal solution critics say that like well the government is a part of the reason why we are in this particular this particular setup or these types of interactions that individuals have with institutions more broadly. It's because the government allows for certain types of kind of extractive relationships to engage. And in some ways, the government had these extractive relationships. I mean, another downside is just kind of the same issues about where, like procedural issues, like where is the capital going to come from? Who's going to pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? The costliness of it. And positives and negatives aside, the question is, how can we impact people's lives right now in this moment? In the same places where banks don't exist, post offices are. And so when banks exited these communities, you know, kind of around the 1970s, where you have what people call banking deserts, there is a post office. So that's kind of another benefit of them. This is sort of a false question because you already alluded to the fact that these predatory private sector institutions, whether it's Wells Fargo or your payday loan entity, can exist without being enabled by the state. And we've seen this in a lot of different types of predatory relationships to communities of color, whether it's the type of both either ignoring fraud when people's houses are being ripped off mm -hmm. by so-called entrepreneurs, or having a tax structure in place and encourage predatory behavior on the part of, of entrepreneurs None of this happens without the state providing the legal regulatory infrastructure mm -hmm. for it to occur. On the other hand, we also know that in terms of the private sector, um, we've talked talked about Wells Fargo, we've talked about the place in the corner that will charge you 20% interest for a financial trans transaction. What is it about the interaction of the state and our economic system that where do we apply the pressure? The 20th century answer was we take over the state, right? You know, I, and I don't mean that in a revolutionary way. I mean, you know, you, for example, if you're in the black community, and we know how solidly since the New Deal blacks have voted for the Democratic Party, you try to elect friendly politicians who will provide a friendlier regulatory environment for more egalitarian practices. It didn't always work out. In fact, it almost never did. But that was the theory that people worked on, mm -hmm. whether it was a liberal or radical or more radical version. But you also know that in this century, many within the black community, political activists are much more skeptical of the state. For both, particularly for, let's say, the short run, where are the levers? Where are the pressure points that people should be looking at to try to improve people's lives today? Some of the levers in the short run is through electing politicians that have kind of a more nuanced understanding of the relationship that these services have in the community. Politicians that don't want to simply just regulate them out of existence, and if that is the argument that they're putting forth, hopefully they're putting forth an, an alternative. Another kind of like lever that people can think about is kind of there are consumer advocacy groups that are doing really like really great work around just making the politics around these services more transparent. And so I think that's another place that people can look towards. Another thing in the short run, I guess that's not in the short run, because attitudinally, 
one of the things that always comes out of my work is that the way people think about individuals that use these services is always about like they don't know. So I guess one thing I'll say that's not helpful in the short run is this idea of just financial literacy or the fact that what the solution is, is to have workshops and communities to tell people how to manage their money, which oftentimes, which is great work, you know, like I think people need to know, you know, how a loan works or kind of how to pay back loans or the importance of interest, what's the principle. But on the other hand, folks that don't have resources often know where every single dollar is going. So, you know, the problem isn't that they don't know how to manage a dollar. The problem is that there's not a dollar. And so I guess the issue you asked about kind of like levers for people to <laughs> to pull on in the short term and outside of thinking more about kind of these traditional political sciences that we, we care about, you know, electing politicians that have, you know, more flexible and consistent priors about these services outside of going to community groups or kind of activist groups that can make these things more transparent or, you know, push on legislation. I keep leaning on this long-term, you know, this long-term solution. And I mean, even when we saw kind of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, you know, making kind of issues around payday lending more, more salient, right? And politicians started talking about it. In our current political climate, like the actual teeth behind any of that is gone. So like, what what's the answer? The answer, again, for me, I guess, is hinging very heavily on like, just rethinking what it means when we talk about folks that don't have, like, it's not about the fact that people don't know how to spend their money. It's the fact that half Americans don't have more than $500 in, in their bank account, right? Like, it's not, it's more complicated. It's not just learn how to manage your dollar. Some way sounds fairly simple, if not in terms of diagnosis, if not solution, which is that we live in a system where people don't have the resources they need. Yeah, but providing resources without indicting the whole, providing resources and doing that will kind of go against a system of where we believe completely in meritocracy and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and that it's, it's me. I'm the one that was able to go to the dealership and get my car. It's not the fact that I had a co-signer who had good credit, right? I'm the one that got, you know, my home by myself. It's not the fact that, you know, I was given a nice assistance <laughs> from someone who helped me provide the down payment for my house. Or more importantly, it's not that we're not paying people enough. It's not that you know, people can't afford to live. It's, you know, why do they want $15 an hour? Why do they want, right? It's like this question, it's so tied into all the facets of kind of economic and political life. Even this idea of like what levers we can pull on always runs against this consistent kind of villainization of people that don't have. And, and that's to substantially racialized as well. Oh my goodness, is it? Yes. I mean, <laughs> I don't explicitly, you know, I don't always, I don't explicitly talk about race because I understand this system to be extremely racialized. We cannot understand any financial system in the United States without thinking about how they develop simultaneously in conjunction with kind of black-white like relations. And so, yes. 
I mean, one side is the ideological side, which we just talked about. The other side is the material side. Mm-hmm. So one of the greatest intergenerational, trans, it might be the greatest, I think at one point it certainly was, and it probably still is, intergenerational transfers of wealth is parents providing children with help on the down payment on, the, on their first home. But we know what the net worth, mm. net, net wealth on average of black families is zero, mm-hmm. and that doesn't happen. And that then mm-hmm. leads to the type of French economy mm-hmm. communities that we talk about because the wealth is not building up. Exactly, right? So in my research, I illustrate one of the things that I, I demonstrate is that, you know, if we compare a lower income white person to a higher income black person, and their likelihood of saying that they use these services, you would expect that as income increased, individuals, no matter their race, you know, report using less of these services. But that's not the case. It's not the case that someone that identifies as a higher income, you know, black person doesn't use these services, right? Because it's not just about the immediate. It's not just about kind of you know, this filling the gap, it's this long-term gap that you're talking about, like the absence of wealth, the absence of the things that actually provide financial stability. And then, you know, the really great report on like kind of, you know, what are the mechanisms, the causes of the black-white kind of wealth gap? One thing we do know, it's been persistent over time and it's, it's widening depending on how you look at it. So what's happening there? Right. Like it's not that individuals are financially irresponsible. It's about an entire system, an entire system that simultaneously kind of or not simultaneously, but systematically excludes folks in different ways, whether it be by pay differentials, whether it be by costly student loans, whether it be by kind of debt traps of using these types of services. I mean, the French economy that I talk about, it's kind of systemic. Right. I have a technical background before I, I moved into the social sciences. I worked in engineering, and I guess I'm fairly aware of the limits of what technology can and cannot do. But one of the mythologies I think that Americans in particular believe is that whether it's climate change or economic inequality, there's a technological solution <laughs> to everything, to every problem we have yep. that most likely will involve minimum or no sacrifice mm-hmm. on the part of citizens, particularly citizens with assets. What have been some of the technological suggestions that people have floated to try to deal with some of the problems that you that you work on? Mobile banking is a really, really big one. Like the idea that, you know, what we what people don't have is they don't have access to a physical a physical location. So what we can do is, you know, make it so that mobile banking becomes more accessible. And instead of having actual kind of bank tellers or banks or kind of financial services in the neighborhood, you can put ATMs or kind of these technological ways in which people can interact. But one of the issues with that is it doesn't address the fact that banking is expensive broadly. And second, it doesn't address the fact that one of the core parts of banking or financial or financial interactions is the trust that happens between you the consumer and them kind of the bank so that's one kind of solution other things is like okay well maybe we can think look towards like kind of alternative fintech like hmm bitcoin or some other thing right because that's accessible no it still has the same limitations about you need access you need internet 
right? You need consistent internet, reliable internet, but that's also just another cost, like another kind of bill that someone would have to pay. So I guess I don't really have, like as I'm talking through it, it's kind of like, I can't think of like financial technology that can address this issue. Or you talk about structural inequality, and I don't think there's a technology that's going to invent it yeah. with structural inequality. <laughs> no, but yeah, like I, that's it, right? It's a technology can't deal with structural inequality. It can only end up replicating, you know, whatever existing inequalities exist. I think some of the work you're thinking about in the future, I think, I think you're the one that told me that. Some of this financial technology doesn't just replicate it. Sometimes it deepens the ex existing inequalities as well. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I'm interested in is kind of this shift to, or one of the things Future Me is interested in, is this kind of shift to thinking about, you know, mobile banking or access to different apps that allow for people to do things quicker and easier or something as convenient as, you know, tolls through a place the way that cities are adopting metro cards, right? These things that, you know, if I have access to internet, if I have access to a computer, if I have access to kind of data on my phone, I can quickly reload my card, I can quickly reload my pass for tolls. However, if I don't have access to any of those things, I have the option of going to the station and reloading my card. If I don't have access to any of those things, I have the option of tolling by plate which is more expensive than if you're an out-of-state person, right? And so it kind of is this case that we end up pushing the burden, pushing the cost to folks that may not have the resources in the first place. Well, we've also seen that in, with relationship as a number of scholars are working on now and activists are fighting, cities and other local jurisdictions using poor communities as revenue streams through fines and... Fines and fees. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Tickets. <laughs> like, it, it goes to show, or it goes to kind of emphasize that it's not, it's not just about what individuals are doing independently of, you know, maybe you shouldn't park your car in that place. It's actually kind of a whole entire system that relies on the fact that individuals don't have access and individuals may not have the capital to capital being not only money but time energy to fight off that ticket you know so i definitely think that as we think more about kind of the future of work and the future of technology all of those questions have to think about the ways in which financial and political inclusion are so tied together and I speak in broad terms because it's super complicated and it depends on what part of the system, what part of the elephant you want to take a bite of in this moment. So for our last question, you touched on this a bit. I know that your immediate priority is getting your book manuscript done, but what are some of the projects you're interested in once, once, the, once the manuscript is out? Once this manuscript is out that I'm super excited about, I'm really excited about, you know, doing a, a large scale survey on kind of these financial insecurity questions that I'm talking about, right? Like really capturing what does it mean to live day to day and from paycheck to paycheck. I'm also super interested in pursuing work that's around kind of the social implications of technology. I mean, I see these projects as complementary to each other because as I move forward on kind of my other working projects about 
just predatory inclusion more broadly, we see that technology is being offered up as a solution to things that we oftentimes don't even have a clear understanding of like the origins of the problem. And so that's what I'm super excited about. Well, thank you very much. This has been fun. Please find us at raceandcapitalism.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at racecapitalism to find out more on what's happening with the project.